See, the question that you and I have to answer is, does Jesus own us? I've heard people say this. They'll say, well, I can take Jesus or leave him. No, you can't. That's delusional, foolish thinking. I'll take Jesus or leave him. Really? Let me know how that works out. Welcome to This Day in the Word with Pastor John Couch, the radio teaching ministry of This Day Ministries. It is a joy to have you listening today, and we pray that you will be encouraged, challenged, and motivated to live for God like never before. And now, with today's message, here's Pastor John Couch. Father, we come before you, and oh God, we just cry out to you this morning in a a desperation. As we long for You, we long for Your glory, we long for Your fame. God, I pray that as we commune with You right now, that we would renounce all the schemes of the enemy, all of his lies and deceit and deceptions, O God, I pray that we would be a people that love You more than life itself. Your Word says that Your steadfast love is greater than life. Therefore, our lips shall praise Your name. And so, Father, as we open Your Word, would You do the heart restoration that only You can do? God, we pray as we hold up the mirror of the Word to our lives that that we would see where we are truthfully, to not live in denial, but to see where we really are and where You want to take us. And so, Father, I pray that You'd move me out of the way, that we would just hear from You see You clearly, desire with a fervency to obey You, to fear You. And God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be acceptable to You and You alone, my Lord and my Rock and my Redeemer. And so, Father, we give You this time as we open Your Word, the truth, not a truth, the truth. Do the work, O God, and do it now. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. I'll take your Bible and turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, looking at verses 19 through 20. The theme, as you know, is that we are all in for God's glory. And I pray that we will understand that theme with a renewed purpose, with a renewed zeal, with a renewed fresh desire of what it really means. And I pray that you would understand that being all in is not a clarion call to be devoted to a church, although that's important. My heart's cry, my heart's desire for you and me is that you would be all into Jesus. 
Uh, everything is an outflow from your being all into Christ. If you're having trouble today obeying the Lord, you don't have an obedience issue. You have a, I don't understand my rescue issue. Because when you really begin to understand your rescue, what you've been saved from and what you've been saved to, the obedience is just a natural outflow. It's just what you want to do. The old has passed away and all things have become new. That's why we are pleading for me, for you to be all in. The mission, as you know, is to what? We exist for the glory of God to be disciples of Jesus that do what? That go and make disciples of Jesus. It's an active mission. It's clear. It's compelling. It's tight. It's very, very driven by the gospel itself that we want to give all praise, all glory, and everything we do to God. And again, that's an outflow as well that when we really want to give glory to God, that we will live a life that hungers, that thirsts, that desires, that says, I want to be a disciple. I don't want to be a casual Christian. I don't want to go along to get along. I want to be all in for His glory. And part of that process and outflow is I will be the disciple. And as I'm being discipled, as I'm becoming more like Christ, as I'm growing in faithfulness, in humility, the fruit of the Spirit, I desperately, you desperately will want to go make disciples. It goes from a, do I have to do this? To I, I can't wait to do this. Why? Because it's ingrained in you. It's no longer on the surface. It's no longer like a puddle of water just sitting there. It is in the deep, fiber of your soul that has become intertwined and you're like I just want to live for Jesus all the days of my life why because I understand my rescue Hebrews 12 tells it like this therefore we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses Hebrews 11 the hall of faith therefore let us let us means this, do this. Let us cast off every weight and all the sin that so easily ensnares me. And let us run with endurance the race, the race that's set before us. Looking to self, not a chance. Look into your spouse, not a chance. Look into your job, not a chance. Looking unto Jesus, King Jesus, for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now He sits at the right hand of the Father. He's the author and He's the perfecter. He's the beginning. He's the finisher of our faith. See, there's a race. If you're here today, if you're listening today, and you profess that you have given your life to Christ, if it's real, you are running a race. Now here's the good news. You're not running alone. But you're running a race. 
And the challenge with this is that so many people claim to know Christ, but they have no clue they're in a race. They're sitting in the bleachers. They're hanging out at the concession stand. Life's a lark. We're just floating through life. I know Jesus. And what you begin to see is that we're running a race, and when we are running a race, you got to be in it to win it. you got to be in the race to win the race. And as you think through that thought, the writer of Hebrews commands us to cast off. One translation says, lay aside. When I hear the words cast off, I sense a desperation, a fervency, a disdain that i got to get this away from me. What happens when we're entangled in sin? Well, we get really sloppy and make poor decisions. What happens when we are weighted down? If right now I put on a backpack and put 100 pounds of weights in there, that'd be pretty heavy, and you, I'd put it on and probably would begin to kind of do something like this, right? Because if I stood up straight, I would tip over. You lean over. Why? Because you're, you're carrying the weight. You're carrying the burden. What happens to my head and my eyes when I'm weighted down? Like what's happening right now to my head and my eyes as I'm weighted down. Where am I looking? I'm looking down. I'm looking at myself through peripheral vision. I'm actually not doing, my head's down, I'm not doing the very one thing He's commanded me to do, and that's to look to Jesus. See, some of you today are walking around with a backpack full of weights, and you're burdened, perhaps you're entangled in sin, and you're looking down. And it's easy to look at self and get enamored with the me monster, me planet, me universe. And God says, don't look inward, look outward. Don't look inward, look upward. And as we think on this thought leading in to the last two verses of five chapters of James, 108 verses that we went systematically through. We've mined every word. We've looked at the Greek. We've applied it to our lives. There are deep foundational truths that we come out of the gate in the study of of James going, wow, 108 verses of James. 108 verses. And so here is our sermon title for today. It's in the form of a question, and here it is. Does Jesus own me? Does Jesus own me? Not does Jesus owe me. Does Jesus own me? Ask yourself right now, as I've asked myself this over this past week, does Jesus really own you? Like, can you say with 100% clarity, I didn't ask, are you perfect? The question is this, does Jesus own you? Like, is that a true statement for your life today? 
didn't ask if he raised a hand, said a prayer, did a cartwheel, signed a card, got dunked. I asked, does Jesus own you? Like, right now today, you're in church, don't lie, does Jesus own you? At the end of the day, it's not going to matter what you own, where you worked, what's in your garage, how many kids you had, how much money was in the bank. None of that's going to matter. At the end of the day, the only thing that matters is does Jesus own you? And my fear is we have droves of people sitting in churches this morning who claim they know Jesus. But Jesus doesn't know them. It's all a sham. It's all an affront. It's all external and nothing happened on the inside. They accepted Jesus when they should be asking, Jesus, will you accept me? And you say, what's that have to do with James? Everything. Because here's what the final two verses in James chapter 5, the conclusion of the book, say. 19 of James 5, my brothers, if anyone among you, highlight that phrase, wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner, very key phrase as well, from his wandering will save his soul from death, wow, and will cover a multitude of sins. When you write a long letter, I don't know, maybe, does anyone still write letters? You know those things like a, there's a piece of paper, and you have like a little contraption, has like a little door on it, an envelope, you lick it and put it in the mail. You guys don't do those things anymore? Maybe an email. Not a just how you doing, not a, hey, I want to communicate, see you later. I'm talking a letter where it's long and it's in depth. What do you typically say at the end of that long letter? Well, you typically say something that doesn't matter, right? But whatever, and you just wrap up this long letter with some filler. Boy, I got a little bit of space at the bottom of the page. Let me just put something in there. Is that what you do? Of course you don't. At a long letter that you have taken the time to painstakingly write, you typically at the very end put something that is mission critical because the reader typically remembers most what was written on that last phrase. I believe that is exactly what James has done here by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, look, if you find a brother among you who's living in sin, your job with grace, mercy, and love is to do everything in your power to turn them back. See, the whole point of James, when you really look at it, is all about salvation. The whole Bible is about the gospel. 
Old Testament looking towards the cross. New Testament looking back towards the cross. It's all about the cross. It's all about the redemption of Jesus Christ. And even though James is so practical and it's so relevant to our day, it's still and forever will be always about Jesus. You think through that thought and that really is the ultimate purpose, that sinners would be saved from spiritual eternal death. So what's the context? Well, look up in your Bible to verse 17. We studied this last week. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, so he was like us, not superhuman. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. Here was the result. And for three years and six long months, it did not rain on the earth. Wow, oh wow. Then he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. You say, wait a minute, I'm really confused. We're talking about Elijah, prayer, and rain. And now all of a sudden, I mean, we're talking about here someone who's sinning. Is James again pivoting? I don't believe he is. We're going to see in a moment how 17 and 18 flow beautifully into these verses. I mean, just think for a moment what we've studied in James. Five chapters, 108 verses. Just think about this. Suffering. Growing in our trials, chapter 1. Faith without works is dead, chapter 2. Taming the tongue. Oh, that was a good one. Chapter 3. All God's people shouted amen on that one. Pride produces strife and living the humble, drawing near to God life in chapter 4. And then in 5, when we really flesh this thing out, we see patience and suffering. We see the power of prayer for the spiritually weak. We see the critical element of confession and prayer in the church and how the two go hand in hand. If you're going to have a healthy church, if you're going to have a healthy church, you have to have true confession, praying for and to one another. You've got to have it. Pray like Elijah. And then all of a sudden, as we're now in this 107th and 108th verse of James, he says, my brothers... It's an endearing term to his fellow brothers. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings them back. Did you catch this? He uses the words among you. Who's his audience? Do we know by now? Jewish believers. This is a church he's talking to. He's not talking to the world, although we can apply it to the world. The context here is he's addressing this church. It's like he's saying this, listen up, listen up. If there's anyone in your church that's living in sin is what he's saying. This is what you are to do. Now this gets really, really dicey. Because probably right now, there's at least one of us in the room going, boy, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this one. If that's you, you're missing the entire point. That's our problem. We're always looking for everyone else to get straightened out, right? No, James is saying, look, I'm talking to you, he's saying, 
plural, yes, but individually, me and you, that individual reader, if there's anyone among you inside your church, sometimes we don't think about this, and unfortunately, it's not reality. But think about this for a moment. Where do you think the enemy is going to seek to get his greatest ROI? I mean, just think about this rhetorical question. Where do you think? Down at the strip club? Oh, you're right, down at the bar. I'm sorry. I mean, why would he hang out somewhere that he already has lock, stock, and barrel? Doesn't even make any logical sense. Where he hangs out is in your house and in the pew next to you. Because if he can get you and I off course, if he can get you and I partially in, which means we're actually totally out, what's that going to do? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's like a cancer that spreads. It's like that carbon monoxide, right? That carbon monoxide. You don't see it. You don't smell it. You don't taste it. But it's unwittingly killing under the surface. Wonders. If anyone among you in your church wonders, W-O-N-D-E-R-S? No. W-A-N-D-E-R-S. It means this, to stray, to be led into error, to be deceived. And this is the one that really gets me. It means this, to be seduced. So I want us to, to picture this. We're going we're to put this together as we always systematically do. So James, last two verses, 108 verses, he's putting a big red bow on the end of this. What he's saying at the end is mission, mission critical. He's saying, look, you got to listen up to this. This is so, so critical to your well-being, to your spiritual walk. He says, don't miss this. If anyone among you inside of your fellowship is deceived, has become seduced, not just sexually. Seduction in this reference is literally being blinded to truth and walking in sin. Drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak. Partaking. Being led in error. And it's so easy for any of us to do this if we're not careful. But we got to ask this question, is he talking, and this is very, very important, is he regulating this to someone who truly knows Christ and then sins? Or is he referring to someone who is lost, but in the fellowship? Now, this is very key, so let me see by a show of hands, how many of us today still struggle with sin? Yeah. How many of us are controlled by sin? Big difference. See, the reality is there can be people inside a church gathering that say all the right things, that look the part, that attend that get baptized, and the reality is this, they're still controlled by sin. 
They're under its dominion. The Bible says it like this, that when you are truly in Christ, that you've given your life to Him, that you get to that point where you just don't accept Him, but you see the gravity of your sin because you see the gravity of your rescue. This is so mission critical. If I could plead with you to understand one concept today, it would simply be this. Do you understand the gravity of your rescue? Do you understand what it cost Christ to redeem and save you? See, when we begin to dial this thing way back and just look at that one concept, and we go, wait a minute, let me unpack this. Let me analyze this. This is what it costs for Christ to rescue me. How do you come out of that equation with a lukewarm, apathetic, indifferent attitude? Here's how you do. You don't really know Jesus. I mean, it's impossible. When you really understand that he was brutally executed so that you might live. When you understand that for he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Why? That we, we might become the righteousness of God in him. When you begin to understand this, this idea of Jesus is my friend with benefits goes out the window. That's not how this works. And it is killing the American church. The disease of the day right now is apathy, indifference, and lukewarmness. And it is spreading like wildfire. And all COVID has done, it's just revealed the problem. Some people go, well, COVID has actually caused it. No, it hasn't. It's revealed it. It's revealed how spiritually lazy we all really are. Are there people that are high risk? Yes. Are there people that can't get out or homebound? Amen. Stay home. But there's a group in between that really wasn't in in the first place. And every flimsy excuse happens. And here we are. It's time for the church of Jesus Christ to become the church of Jesus Christ. That's why key number one is so important. Write it down. Here's the frightening reality. Not everyone who attends a church has truly given their life to Jesus. Period. Key number one, write it down. Here's the frightening reality. Not everyone who attends a church has truly given their life to Jesus. Do you understand this? There will be good, I'm talking good, and I know some of these, good people. I'm talking good people. Like salt of the earth, like they will loan you a rake at a moment's notice, and they don't care if you give it back. Good, well-meaning people. There's going to be a lot of good, well-meaning people that go to church that end up in hell. You say, how do you know that? Well, the Bible tells us. See, good people don't go to heaven. Rescued people do. I say, where are you going with this? Well, write down Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Matthew 7, 13 through 14. And as you're writing that down, the thought occurred to me about the 
this group that can infiltrate a church that aren't really saved, they're actually the hardest people to reach. Pause for a moment and think about this. So, you are either walking in light or you're walking in darkness. Those are your two options. For the true believer, are there times where you sin and you partake of some darkness, but you quickly repent and you move back to light? Amen? You're still walking in light. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And part of this body of death we're in that we struggle, but prayerfully we're becoming more like Christ. But you're in one of two camps. And what happens so often, as you see here in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, it says this, enter by the narrow gate. So picture this, it's a narrow gate. Like really narrow. When you think of narrow, I want you to picture something really, really narrow that maybe you've tried to walk through in the past and picture how you tried to get in there. Like you didn't saunter in there, arms are swinging. You didn't saunter in there with a bunch of stuff from the garage, right? Here, let me go through the narrow way. What'd you do? Well, you, you dropped everything you had, you turned to the side, you sucked in your gut, right? And you shimmied through. <laughs> made it in. So here's a narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate. There's the admonition. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, really big, and the way is easy. Again, life's just a lark. I mean, we're having the time of our life. What happens? It leads to where? Destruction. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. And those who enter by it are many. What can we deduct from that one verse? There's a path that's really wide and it's so easy to walk down. And many droves upon droves of people are on this path. But the end is destruction. Their spiritual destruction is waiting for them. Romans says it like this, that God is storing up His wrath for the day to come. That when that cord gets cut, and if you are not walking on the narrow path, if you're not walking in the light, and His name is Jesus, but you claim to be a follower of Christ, you claim to be in, you've done all the religious things, and yet the reality is you're walking in darkness. When that cord gets cut... It's going to be released with a fury. And here's the reality that when that cord gets cut, that when the profession is actually a false one, it's going to be exposed for what it really is. Think through this thought, continuing on, verse 14 of Matthew 7. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard. Did you catch that? The way is hard. That leads to where? Leads to life. And those who find it are few. Are you picturing the two paths? Which path are you on? Let me ask it this way. Does Jesus own you? See, the path that is, is narrow is the road marked with suffering. The path that's narrow is hard and it's difficult. And few, only a few are going to find this. There's going to be so many in the last days that say, but Jesus, we, we did all these miracles in your name. 
We prophesied in your name. We could make it to our context. Hey, we were at church most of the time. Hey, we actually went into the church on a work day even and helped sling some mulch, Jesus. We can give them all these excuses about this external life we lived for Him that was never truly transformed. And He's going to say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, you worker of sin and lawlessness. I never knew you. Not, hey, how you doing? Um, I don't know you today. No, I never knew you. See, the question that you and I have to answer is, does Jesus own us? I've heard people say this. They'll say, well, I can take Jesus or leave Him. No, you can't. That's delusional, foolish thinking. I'll take Jesus or leave Him. Really? Let me know how that works out. We're talking about life and death matters spiritually. There should be a passion, a hunger, a thirst to win the loss at any cost. That we'll just do whatever it takes to reach this community around this church. There has to be a wake up. There has to be a shake up. We got to begin to be all in for God's glory. Because when we understand our rescue and we see it for what it really is, what we were saved from and what we're saved to, it will begin to illuminate everything we do in our lives. You're listening to This Day in the Word, the radio teaching ministry of This Day Ministries. All of Pastor Couch's messages are archived and are free to download at thisdayministries.org. In addition, you can share your prayer requests with us via email. Our email address for prayer requests is prayer at thisdayministries.org. That's prayer at thisdayministries.org. And now, back to This Day in the Word with Pastor John Couch. Yet it's such a struggle because Hebrews 2.1 gives us a great warning. It says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. Why? Lest we drift away from it. This is why the teaching of God's Word, just not from the pulpit. I'm talking Sunday schools, ladies' gatherings, men's gatherings, children's groups, student groups. That's why this is mission critical at this church. We will never, as long as I'm the pastor here, we will not deviate from the truth of God's words. You say, why are you so passionate? I'll tell you why. When you've walked on the other side, you don't want to go back there. And you see the dire need we're in our country. We're so worried about who's in the White House, we need to start worrying about is Jesus on His throne where He needs to be in our lives? Does Jesus own you? I mean, really? Can you say today, He owns me? He doesn't rent a room in my house. I didn't give Him a junk closet. Everyone's got a junk closet, amen? Everyone's got a junk drawer, right? Everyone's got a junk drawer. Is that what we're giving him? Are we giving him the leftovers? You say, well, what's the power of sin? Well, write down Genesis chapter 4. Go all the way back to Genesis. Write that down. Genesis 4, 3 through 7. It says this, Genesis 4, 3 through 7, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord. I love this. He brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Okay, it sounds good. 
Well, here's the reality. In Abel, verse 4, also brought of the firstborn. Very key. First. Not seconds. Not leftovers. Firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. He gave a bunch. First. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Verse 5. But Cain. Oh boy, here we go. Here goes the selfishness and envy. And as James taught us, where there's selfishness and envy, what? Confusion and every evil thing will be there. Here we go. But for Cain is offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. The me monster, me planet, me universe took over. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, if you obey, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, if you disobey, sin, here it is, sin is crouching at your door. See, I don't think we get this. We don't understand the power of sin. It is crouching at my door and your door every day. It just sits there, just waiting to pounce. It's crouching at your door. Here's the key phrase. Its desire is contrary to to you, but you, but me, we must rule over it. John Owen, the great Puritan, would say it like this, be killing sin or be killing you. The more we coexist with sin, the more we we dabble in it, the more we say it's not a big deal, the more we try to manage it, the more it manages us. And it begins to take over. It sinks its claws in. We are now caught, as Proverbs says, in the cords of sin. We are ensnared. We are entrapped. We can't get out. We think right is wrong and wrong is right. We're just delusional. We don't know where we're going. And we do this, according to James, inside the church. Wow. Titus gives us a great encouragement. Paul writes to Titus here in chapter 3. So think about this. Write this down. So Paul writes to Titus in chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, when he says these words, for we ourselves were once, don't miss this, once foolish, once disobedient, once led astray, once slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days once in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when, I love this, but when the the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. He rescued us. He takes all of this once, what we used to be, and we take all the pain and all the hurt that's there in our lives, and we try to self-medicate, and we try to keep it under wraps, and we're caught in this cycle of stupidity, of one bad decision after another. And Paul here is telling Titus, that's who we once were. When Christ has saved us, we are no longer slaves to sin. We're a child of the King. You say, how do you know? Well, look at the text. He saved us, rescued us, verse 5, not because of works done by us in righteousness. It's by grace we've been saved. 
but according to His own mercy, by the washing, I love this, by the washing of what? Of the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out richly. He didn't just say, hey, let me give you a dropper full every now and then. When you give your life to Christ, He backs you up to the Holy Spirit fire hydrant and pours it out richly through who? Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Here's the two words, so that. So here's what it is, and here's the mission, so that being justified, declared righteous, we are declared righteous at the cross of Jesus Christ. Our sins have been propitiated. Literally, the wrath, have God, the wrath of God has been satisfied. Not by me, not by you, but by Jesus Christ and Him alone. Why? So we might, I love this, so we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, Paul told the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 5, verses 6 through 16, he said, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God, we talked about this earlier, comes upon the sons of disobedience. There is going to be a price to be paid for those who have not given their lives to Jesus, period. There is no way to get around this. Whether it's you, whether it's a family member, if they have not given their lives to Christ, there is going to be a price to pay. This should inspire in me and you a deep urgency for the gospel. This should motivate you and I to be on mission for the mission. We should become missionaries for the gospel, every one of us, that will go out and make disciples that make disciples. And my fear is all across America, the main reason we're not making disciples is because the reason is, are we really disciples ourselves? So you can't give away that which you yourself do not possess. It's impossible. It won't happen. Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 5, 6-16, through 16, let no one deceive you. Therefore, verse 7, do not become partners with them. Do you see that? He warns us there, the people that look like they're really in and they're really not, have nothing to do with them. They're going to drag you down, but they're my friend. Find a new one. I mean, this is not that complicated. The Bible says this, that light has no fellowship with darkness. Doesn't mean you don't pray for them. Doesn't mean you can't in some way encourage them in their walk. But if you're hanging around them and they're dragging you down don't be unequally yoked, and that's just not a verse for people getting engaged. He's talking about their harness there, that wooden device, and you put the oxen in there, and it's fastened on one neck and on the other, and it's so easy to yoke up our oxen to the wrong one. Walk as children. I love this. Look at this. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Verse 8. For at one time you were darkness. See it once again, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. 
and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part, here it is, in the unfruitful works of darkness. Have nothing to do with it, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of these things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, I love this, awake, O sleeper. That's my prayer today. I pray if you are walking in darkness today, I pray by the power and the quickening of the Holy Spirit that awake your soul today. I pray there'll be an awakening and a stirring like never before. And Christ will do what? He'll shine on you. Look carefully then how you, how I walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time, redeeming the time. Why? Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. How will you understand the will of the Lord if you first don't understand your rescue? It won't happen. We got to get to a point in the American church that we understand what we were saved from, what we're saved to, and that's going to change everything. If we just do that one thing, if we really begin to marinate on what we've been saved from, the power of sin, the grip of sin, its dominion, enslavement, and now we've been freed from it, it's going to change everything. But as long as we don't, it will continue to wreak havoc in our homes, and our churches. So what does the last verse say? The final verse of James, verse 20. Let him, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So there's that let him means again to do this. If you look in your Bible at verse 13, look what it says there. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. In other words, pray, do this. Look at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him do this. Let him call for the elders of the church. That whoever brings back, whoever turns, who helps convert. Now, here's the deal. Pause for a moment. There's two thoughts here on this. Who saves people? Do you save people? Do I save people? I can't save myself, let alone anyone else. It's only by Jesus Christ through His righteousness that we're saved. Amen? When you think through that thought, here's the beauty of this. God does the saving through Jesus Christ, but for whatever reason, He's chosen to use people like me and you in the process. Pretty wild, isn't it? He chooses to use people like me and you in the process. We're part of this. It's exciting. Paul said it like this, I planted, but Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. I planted, Apollos watered, but God did the work. We're to be obedient. You think through that thought as well, and right there in verse 20, it says this, whoever brings back. It doesn't say the pastor. It doesn't say a deacon. It doesn't say an usher. Although a pastor, a deacon, and an usher could help bring someone back. What is James's point here? Here's his point. It's the whole church's responsibility to help bring back the wayward person. We just don't sit there and go, oh, well, that's their problem. No, it's all of our problem. That's hard, though, because sometimes the wayward person doesn't want to meet. Then what do you do? I mean, now you're in a real pickle, aren't you? I mean, this can get very, very dicey. Does it mean that we still don't pursue truth? Of course we pursue truth. 
So what do you think as we look through this thought? Well, whoever brings back a sinner. What does that mean? This is very mission critical. What does that mean, a sinner? Is that someone who just dabbles in sin and is saved? Well, here in this context, this original word here means this, someone who is devoted to sin. So we can deduct from that that James, his first, that James's first mission here is to deduct that we're talking about lost people, unregenerate people that are inside the fellowship. I know it's hard to believe, but it exists all across America. We've created this machine that makes it so easy with easy believism to not really be in. But when you look at Scripture and you see the high cost of discipleship, you see the high cost of what believing really means, that it's just not intellectual, it's just not emotionalism, it's the two combined with the final component of the act of the will. And here James is saying, whoever brings back a sinner, whoever helps turn them, and I've done this before, I've pleaded with people with tears in my eyes. I have pleaded with people. Don't go this direction. You're driving off a cliff. You're going to take your family with you. There's going to be mass destruction everywhere you go. And because of the blindness of the heart and the mind of the soul, there they go. It's not my job to save. It is my job to warn. And it's your job too. It's just too easy to sit on our hands and do nothing. We must do what we can to do what? Well, here's the last portion of that. To rescue, to save that sinner, that one devoted to sin from their wandering, from their being seduced, deceived, and it will save their soul. The soul is immortal. And it will save, it will rescue the soul From what? From death. Physical death? No. Spiritual death. You understand this, that when you and I exit, when you and I exit, one zeptosecond, one zeptosecond inside eternity, it's the smallest unit of time there is, one zeptosecond inside eternity, we're going to know very, very clearly if we were in. And there's no do-overs. For the one that has never given their life to Christ, here is the reality from God's Word. This is what awaits. Eternal separation from God and eternal punishment forever. That's what awaits. Do you see why Jesus died? I mean, are we getting this? Because the stakes are so high, the sacrifice had to be so great. This is the point of the gospel. It's not about a Santa Claus and an Easter bunny. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ that has come to seek and save those who are lost. Not missed. Not, hey, you know what? Uh, We can't seem to find them. No, lost. Call this what it is. And when we get real, that's when God begins to be real in our lives. As we get real with Him. There's one final step here, and it says this in that verse. 
He'll save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Cover. It literally means this, to forgive. So when your sin, I love this, there's an old phrase that goes something like this, that, that what we uncover by confession, God covers with the blood of His Son. Think through this. What we uncover through confession, God covers with the blood of His Son. However, what we cover and choose not to confess, God will at some point uncover. This is the beauty of the gospel, that when a sinner repents and it's real, when there's godly sorrow that leads to repentance, their sin is covered. 1 John 1.9, He pardons, He forgives, He cleanses from all sin and all unrighteousness. He forgives and He cleanses. A multitude. That means a great number. Not small. He's not trying to put a finite term here. He's given an illustration that when you repent and it's real and it's true and you've given your life to the Lord, all of your sin, as far as the east as to the west, is cast. It's cast away. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. I love this point that when God looks at you who's given your life to Christ and it's through Him to get to God, John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Here's the beauty of this. When God looks at you, He looks through the covering of Christ's blood and He looks through the blood and He sees you as the redeemed sinner who's no longer a sinner anymore. You're no longer devoted to sin. You are now white as snow. There's nothing greater in this life. That's why our final key, key number two, it's all of our individual responsibility in the church to hold ourselves and one another accountable to the truth of God's Word. Key number two, it's all of our individual responsibility in the church to hold ourselves accountable and one another accountable to the truth of God's Word. I mean, really, think about this. How much do we have to hate people to not plead with them to be reconciled to God. I mean, no one escapes pain-free when people sin inside the church. It has a damaging effect on everyone. That's why we've got to remember it's the disease of the day, as I mentioned earlier, and it's all about partial commitment, lukewarmness. What happens, though, is it metastasizes and it begins to spread like a wildfire. It's a vengeance. It's, it has a vengeance and a fury like none other. And, but you've got to remember, it's all about root and fruit. And so the, the lukewarmness there is actually what? Just a, a fruit problem. It's the byproduct of the real root issue. And the real root issue is not understanding the rescue. There's a lukewarmness towards Jesus. See, when we're lukewarm towards Jesus, when we have apathy towards Jesus, it's going to impact everything we do. 
When we have a fervor and a hunger and a devotion to Christ, it's going to impact everything we do. And so you think through that thought, and when you ride the fence for Jesus, you got to remember that Satan owns the fence. And at some point, you're going to have to fall one way or the other. That's why Paul, again in Ephesians chapter 4, he, he gave this beautiful long narrative there, and starting in verse 11, he says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Not do it, but equip them for the work. Why? For the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, what? To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that, here it is we may no longer be children that are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love. Ooh, that's a hard one. We're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with it is equipped. When each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Did you catch that? This is how families and churches are designed to work, and this sin creeps onto the scene, and it destroys everything. That's why Hebrews 3.13 is a great admonition. But exhort one another every day, not just on Sunday, not just on Wednesday night, as long as it's called today. Why? That none of you, me and you, may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, the heart, the heart gets calcified. It gets resistance to truth. It doesn't want to hear truth. That's why it's so hard to reach the false Christian. When you're false, you don't want to hear truth because it's offensive to your falseness. When you're walking in truth, may you hunger for it. You're like, I can't get enough of this stuff. First John chapter 2, our final verse, gives us a beautiful thought. First John 2.19, here's the warning for all of us. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. See, a true believer may sin, but not live in perpetual habitual sin. If you have the Holy Spirit residing within you, even though you can quench and grieve the Holy Spirit, that's a true statement. At some point, you're going to repent from that if it's real. If the confession and the profession are true, and you've really given your life to Christ, at some point, you will not be under the control and dominion of sin. You will live in freedom. So the takeaway question, have I truly given my life to Jesus? Answer that honestly. Another way you could ask this is, does Jesus own me? Not does Jesus owe me, does Jesus own me? Or is the reality that your heart truthfully has been calcified? 
Is there a stiff-necked, brazen forehead that just resists the truth? There will be godly sorrow that leads to repentance, and that's why the action step is so paramount. Here it is. Write it down. By the power of the Holy Spirit, that's key, I will strive by the power of the Holy Spirit to not live in spiritual denial, but I will strive to daily admit and deal with my capacity for sin. Let me say that again. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I will strive to not live in spiritual denial, but I will strive to do what? To daily admit, confess, and deal with my capacity for sin. I am a pastor who has a great capacity to sin. It would be dishonest, untruthful, and insane for me to say otherwise. I have to be honest enough to say, I have a great capacity for sin. I have to constantly be sober and to be vigilant. Why? Because the devil, my adversary, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. We must be on our guard. Don't fall into the trap, church, of saying, I would never do that. Oh, I would, I would never commit that. But you're probably in over your head. I mean, if you get to the point in your life like, oh, I would never do that. Really? How many people have I counseled over the years that have told me this? I can't believe I did X because I told myself I would never do this. The heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? We are all capable of great, great sin. And here's what we typically do. We like to throw rocks at everyone else, don't we? Well, I learned as a boy, when you begin to learn how to throw a rock, you just don't kind of you know, toss it. I mean, I mean, you learn, you throw that like a baseball, don't you? I mean, you put your whole body into it. You got your arm out here. I'm right-handed, so I put my left arm out, and I got that, I got that knuckler there, and I'm telling you, I'm going to wing this thing at you. I'm going to beam you up right side of the head, right? And I put everything I got into this thing. It's humming. You can hear it coming. Well, what happens, though, if, if you're trying to keep your guard up? How many guards can you hold up when your whole body is into something trying to throw rocks at everyone else for their sin? Well, the, the guard's laying on the ground, isn't it? Well, we need to put down the rocks and pull up the guard. And I mean, build a fortress around us. I got so many people I'm talking to, and they're like, well, well, he's got this problem, and she's got this problem. And I always go back to the same thing. Work on yourself. Deal with you. You get you right, and then you watch God potentially work in this situation. But if we're just slinging rocks at each other, no one has their guards up. The enemy's having a field day. And we begin to walk in further delusion. So here's the good news. Here's the promise from God's Word. Hebrews 7, 25. Consequently, He, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost. I love this. To the uttermost. I love this. He's able to save to the uttermost. Like, do you get this? He's able to save to the uttermost. Not like partially. Not like I hope He'll do this. We're talking to the depths of your depravity today. He is able to reach in. No matter what you've done, the sin you've committed, He is able to reach down, pull you out of the muck and the mire, and to set you on His high hill. He's able to do this. And I love the last part. For those who draw near to God, sounds familiar from James. Through Him, through Jesus, since He always lives to make intercession for us and for them. 
Don't you love that? I'm going to read that one more time. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, through Jesus, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Father, we come before You and Lord, as we just ponder this question, does Jesus own us? Are we really in? Because if we're not really in, we're really out. Are we just partially in? That means we're totally out. Father, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, no human person can change a heart, but the Holy Spirit can. So, Father, I pray right now, would you illuminate these words from your word today in our minds, our heart, and our soul? Oh, deep into our minds, deep into our hearts, deep into our souls. Will you move all over this room today, God? Oh, I pray. God, I plead. I plead with you, Lord, in these final two verses. If there's one here today, maybe several, that don't truly know you, you don't own them. They're trying to own you. God, I pray, would you do something today? I pray against the schemes of the enemy. I pray against the oppression right now that is holding people back. God, I just pray you would do something. Because at the end of the day, your word tells us we are to fear you and obey you. When we fear you, the outflow is obedience. Because you will. You will bring every work into judgment, whether good or evil. Holy Spirit, move in this time. Don't allow us to rebel. The most important thing we got going on today is giving our life to you totally. Will you do it in this room today, Lord? Stir in that heart right now. We pray this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said. Amen. You've been listening to This Day in the Word, the radio teaching ministry of This Day Ministries. Don't forget that all of these messages are archived and are free to download at thisdayministries.org. That's thisdayministries.org. In addition, if you have been blessed by the teaching of God's Word during This Day in the Word, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is info at thisdayministries.org. Thanks again for listening as we strive to honor Christ and impact our world as we spend this day in the Word.